0: Here tonight, a rare Wayne Gretzky trading card is sold for a record $3.75 million at auction. It's a mint-condition Gretzky rookie card from 1979. This is not the first time it's been up for sale. Its value continues to rise. The very same card sold for 1.29 million in December, which was the hockey card record at the time shattered.
1: Welcome back. So that was a few years ago, a mint condition Wayne Gretzky working card selling at auction for $3.75 million, a card that if you were a kid 45 years ago and you collected hockey cards, as most of us did at the time, this probably passed through your hands at some point. Maybe you traded it uh, with a friend. Maybe you put it in the, the spokes of your bike so it would sound cool like a motorcycle. Maybe it ended up in a box somewhere and just got thrown out at some point. Uh, That was a potential winning lottery ticket for you. And I guess, look, the reason why they're so valuable is because they are so few. Uh, There are many of them, especially those in, in that kind of condition. Well, fast forward to this past weekend, and maybe we've got a few more to add to the mix. Because this wasn't technically a sale of a Gretzky rookie card, although it probably involved some. What this is, and I mean, it's just bonkers that this was found. This was actually a case, a case of boxes. And within each box, several packs of Opeachy hockey cards, the seventy-nine eighty series. It's the year the Gretzky rookie cards came out. This was found by a family in Saskatchewan. So that went up for auction and late Saturday, I guess technically early Sunday morning Eastern time, uh, the case sold. All told, $5 million Canadian. So joining us to talk more about the auction uh, and the interest uh, in this Holy Grail, at least as it pertains to hockey cards. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jason Simons, sports card specialist and consignment director at Heritage Auctions, which oversaw the auction this weekend. Jason, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is fascinating, I think, for a lot of reasons. But just, you know, I know the family who found this, they want to remain anonymous, and I think we can respect that. But what can you tell us about, first of all, how this discovery was made?
2: Yeah. So what this is, is, as you described, a case of hockey cards. This, these boxes are the same boxes you would have opened when you were a kid um, pulling packs from the grocery store checkout aisle. Yeah. And this case was purchased back in 1979 by our consigner, who was an avid collector. And he was he had every intention of opening this case back in 1979. And frankly, he just didn't get around to it. So he was a, he was a big-time collector who, who had been buying cases of 78, 77, 79, 80. And he had been opening up boxes to build sets. And this case was looked through the cracks. Um, it was yeah. in his collection for all these years, and as his son was emptying out this back room where he stored all these boxes, he stumbled across this case.
1: So how many cards in total, then, if you look at all the boxes, all the packs, what does that add up to?
2: So if you're doing the math, 16 boxes, and each box there's 48 um, packs, in each pack there's 14 cards and a stick of gum, you get over 10,000 cards. And with a set of 396 cards in the set, you should get somewhere between 25 and 30 Wayne Gretzky rookie cards in here.
1: Right. So the odds that there wouldn't be any are just kind of off the charts astronomical. Like, there there are some right. Gretzky cards in there. We can say that with, with mathematical certainty.
2: Right. It would be a yes. statistical anomaly <laughs> right. if there weren't.
1: <laughs> and all that gum's in there, too, I guess,
2: right? Yep. And all the gum is still in there. Um <laughs> I wouldn't
1: recommend eating it. No, Yeah, no kidding. Uh, So, I mean, I think there's an assumption because they've been in the packs, they've been in the box, they've been in the case, these are all going to be in in great condition. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of valuing these cards, what they might sell for, you know, even what's considered a 9 versus what's considered a 10 can be a massive difference in what they might be worth. So what do we know about the likely condition of these cards?
2: So you know the the condition should be pretty strong, Um, but as you said, the difference between a nine, which is mint condition, and a ten, which is gem mint condition, can be astronomical. Um, And it's the difference between a millimeter of centering differences, or maybe there's an errant print dot on the back of the card, or maybe there's just a little bit too much ink. You know, collectors are very finicky people. But to put it into perspective, PSA nine or PSA ten, which is the best condition you can get. We sold a copy for $3.75 million. And a PSA 9, which is just one step below that, sells for around $150,000. Holy cow. So, the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so the difference between this is, is huge. So it's, it's a lottery. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a gamble to open these boxes and hope for a 10 Gretzky. You might not get one.
1: Right. So that was a bit of a risk. But nonetheless, I mean, there was a considerable amount of interest in this auction. I think it came down to two bidders in the end. But but, how did this compare to others you've done before?
2: So this one is, you know, it, it, it's unique. This is a once-in-a-generation type find. It's like finding a, a Picasso in your basement. Yeah. Um, it, it's the most money by a magnitude for Um, that has gone to auction for an unopened case of cards. The previous auction record was $1.8 million. This nearly doubles that. And so what we have here is the Holy Grail of hockey. You know, this is is Wayne Gretzky's best card. This is the best hockey card, the most valuable hockey card in existence. And this is a case, an unopened case of that set. You know, this is this is what dreams are made of in, in our industry. And, and we might not ever see one of these again, especially if this case is ultimately opened or the boxes are distributed. Um, it's very possible that this case is the last time we see it in this unopened yeah. form.
1: I do wonder, I mean, you know, evaluation does come down. There's economics here, supply and demand. I mean, if there mm-hmm. are now all of a sudden, say, 30 Gretzky rookie cards that are now going to be out there on the market, does that affect the, the value at all?
2: No, no, probably not. Um, what ha- The Wayne Gretzky, the OPG Wayne Gretzky card, isn't that rare. A lot of people listening to this right now might have one. You might have one in your safety deposit box or stored in a binder somewhere or in a shoebox in your mother's closet. What it makes this rare is that these are unopened boxes. And... By opening these boxes, you run the risk of devaluing what you what you had just purchased. So, I would imagine this isn't actually going to result in too many more Wayne Gretzky cards entering the market.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, if you have a card, you can put it in the case, you can put it on display. I mean, you know, having all these boxes doesn't necessarily give you that option. But I don't know. I mean, do we know what the the buyer's intent is here? They're going to open these packs and see what's there, or just you know keep it as it is?
2: We don't know. Yeah, yeah, we don't know. Um, and you know the. Someone might open the case and display all the unopened boxes. I mean the boxes people do display boxes they they um, it's a, it makes for a good display having a bunch of these old boxes because people are nostalgic for the time when they got to go to the checkout aisle and seeing all these stacks of hockey cards or baseball cards that they could buy and remembering spending you know ten cents or twenty five cents or the the money that you made shoveling snow and going to the corner store to buy to buy a pack of cards. People remember that and so sometimes a lot of times people will display these in their unopened format just because they like this stuff
1: so what is it about this card or what is it about rookie cards in general because i know there's i guess i think the mickey mantle one was the the most expensive even the lebron james rookie cards yep. uh that's another one what is it about these cards
2: the rookie card is just a, another term for their earliest card. You know, if you think about a rookie, it's, it's someone who's entered the league for the first time in their first year in professional sports. So a rookie card is just their earliest card. So Wayne Gretzky, if you think about, you know, the, the, the top athletes in the world across any sport, Wayne Gretzky's in, in that discussion, no matter, no matter who you're talking to. And this is his earliest card. This is certainly hockey's most, iconic card and in terms of the sports collecting community across all sports baseball football hockey basketball soccer you know the wayne gretzky 1979 OPG hockey card is one of those top 10 cards that people desire because it's it's the great one mm-hmm. and this is his earliest one this is his earliest card
1: it's almost like uh, you know the uh, first edition of a comic book like action comics number one exactly. that was superman's origin the rookie card is is these heroes origin Exactly. Very interesting. So uh, we'll see, I guess, what this buyer decides to do uh, with, with this. And uh, the hunt will continue for, for uh, more of these, uh, these iconic cards, I imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah. And who knows? Maybe there's another one of these out there. But um, it might be a very, very, very long time before we see it.
1: And much more. Heritage Auctions. It's HA.com. Jason, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you. All the best. That's uh, Jason Simons, uh, sports card specialist, consignment director at Heritage Auctions. So that's the business they do. Because uh, that's the thing you can find this box, but what are you going to do? You're going to try to sell it yourself? You're going to shop it around to collectors? Well, you've got these auction sites that step in and those that specialize in this realm. So that's what this family did. Imagine that. Imagine realizing what you have on your hands here. <laughs> like, that's pretty stunning. Uh, So, yes, so the way this all worked with the auction, so it started with 15 bidders, came down to two. Uh, It was a Canadian and an American. The Canadian won the auction. Uh, So it was 3.1 million U.S. they paid. Then there was a 20% buyer's premium added to that purchase. So the final uh, amount was 3.72 U.S., which works out to just over $5 million Canadian. Uh, so the winning bidder was a Canadian. They're remaining uh, anonymous. Uh, so too is uh, the family who found this. Just imagine that, the Thousands of unopened hockey cards from that year. So you know what's in there somewhere. This iconic Wayne Gretzky hockey card. But wasn't that staggering? We talked about the difference between a 10 and a 9. Think about you ranking anything else. On a scale of 1 to 10, how good is this? Yeah, it's a 10. Well, maybe it's a 9. No, it's a 10. Eh, close enough. Not in this world. Uh, the difference between a 9 and a 10 is huge. 9 is still considered mint condition. But that's like $100,000 valuation. Good money, sure. But a 10... We saw a few years ago, as mentioned, a 10 sold for $3.75 million. So that's the thing. So you know in this box there are Gretzky rookie cards. The math tells you there should be somewhere around 25, 26, somewhere in that area. Maybe there's a little bit less. Maybe there's a little bit more. They're in the packages, so they're in good condition. But how many of those are A 10? I mean, I don't know. Do the math. Even if there's like twenty five and, you know, they're each just one hundred thousand. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Monday afternoon. Uh, interesting timing uh, for for this uh, story today. Um, the Competition Bureau says so certain cell phone plans in Western Canada are not as cheap as they once were prior to the Rogers Shaw merger. So, look, I mean, we we love to grumble about uh, our cell phone bills and wireless uh, in this country. And, um, you know, maybe there's good reason for that. But, you know, certainly for the big players, uh, there was uh, much money to be made. Rogers, Bell or BCE and TELUS are the big three. And, of course, we just went through, as the story alludes to, a pretty big takeover in the sector as Rogers took over Shaw. And I guess, you know, the full repercussion of that maybe remains to be seen. And it's prompted quite a conversation about the structure of our industry or at least what Canadians expect from it. And also really highlights just how powerful, how large and powerful these companies are. So within all of that power, within these corridors of power, uh, there is much drama unfolding, far from the public eye. But it's the story of a new book looking at that rogers Shaw deal and the story from the inside. It's called Rogers versus Rogers, the Battle for Control of Canada's Telecom Empire. Uh, Joining us to talk more about it is the author of the book, uh, Alexandra Podsacki, is a business reporter for The Globe and Mail and uh, author of this book. In fact, she's going to be in Calgary tomorrow, a WordFest event, uh, to talk about the new book. More details at WordFest.com. Alexandra, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, first of all, what got you, you know, I mean, obviously you were covering this in your day job as a business uh, reporter with the Globe and Mail. But what was it about the story that really captured you realized, you know, there, there's a deeper story to be told here?
3: Yeah, so as you've alluded to, I am a telecom reporter at the Globe and Mail, a role that I've held for the last four years. And, of course, this conflict that broke out within the Rogers family uh, happened while I was on the telecom beat. It was in the fall of 2021. And, you know, this is um, a story that really had everything. It's got sibling rivalry. It's got betrayal. It's got backstabbing. It's got corporate intrigue. Um, It is essentially a real-life version of HBO's hit show, session and it's all happening in this company rogers that is very significant to canada touches millions of people's lives you know not just through wireless and cable services but also because they own media companies sports teams the rogers center they're a widely held stock in people's pension plans and they employ tens of thousands of people so to have this kind of um you know high stakes fight breaking out in this very significant company uh made it a very interesting story
1: and this is still very much a, a family business in, in a lot of ways so when we talk about rogers versus rogers and you know the family members and i mean there are others who were a big part of this clearly but uh, who are the players we need to know here
3: Well, it all begins with Ted Rogers, who is the founder of Rogers, and he's this sort of legendary entrepreneur who creates this company uh, alongside his wife Loretta and Ted and Loretta have four children so the oldest of them is Lisa followed by Edward and then Melinda and Martha and um, you know as the story kind of progresses we see Edward and Melinda both kind of rising up through the ranks of Rogers there's a lot of questions about succession who's going to take over when Ted passes away and then you know when Ted does pass away he actually doesn't pass the throne on to his son or his daughter for that matter. He tells the board to choose the next CEO and the board ends up giving the job to a non Rogers family member. And so then we kind of see after Ted's death, a series of CEOs coming and going. And then the story really takes off in 2021. And at the time, our two uh, main characters are Joe Natale, the CEO of Rogers and his chief financial officer, Tony Staffieri.
1: So when it came to the Shaw deal uh, that, that, you know, and it was I think an open question as to whether, you know, they were going to convince regulators to go along with this. But, you know, where did this come from and, and how much disagreement was there within the company, within, you know, these corridors of power over this?
3: Yeah, so the Shaw deal was a really, really, really important deal for Rogers. It was the deal of Ted Rogers' dreams. He had always wanted Rogers to be a truly national coast-to-coast cable company. And in the early days, Ted Rogers and J.R. Shaw, the founder of Shaw, actually carved the country into east and west by dividing up various Cable assets, And so um, the, this deal was essentially the coming together of these east and west cable families. And within the Rogers family itself, there was no disagreement about the deal. Everyone was completely aligned on wanting this $20 billion acquisition to go through. The issue was that edward the chairman of the board didn't believe that the current ceo well then current ceo was the right guy to integrate the two uh, companies whereas certain board uh, members and other family members felt that it would be too disruptive to the company while it was in the midst of trying to consummate this merger to change the ceo at that moment and so that's a big part of where the disagreement came from
1: so as you start to put this together, both in, in, your, in your reporting and in preparing this book, uh, how willing are the players here or those close to the players to talk about all of this? And, and do you, did you even sort of witness almost yourself some of this, this backstabbing or the fights between various factions?
3: People were definitely very hesitant to speak publicly and for a lot of various reasons. Some of them had contractual reasons, others were really concerned about uh, doing anything that could disrupt the deal. Uh, However, I did manage to speak to, I will just say, over 120 sources uh, who chose to remain confidential. And many of the sort of perspectives of all of the sides in the whole thing so i was able to i would say really get at the core issues of what was going on behind the scenes but i did have to agree to protect the confidentiality of many of my sources
1: and and you know the stakes are high i mean it speaks to just how powerful you know companies like rogers have become in 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 canada what what did you learn about that side of this
3: That's definitely a big part of the reason why people are hesitant to speak out about family issues. For instance, while this whole fight was playing out, one very notable thing was the manner in which the Shaw family actually stayed very much in the background. They didn't say anything. They didn't really issue any statements. um, And they just, you know, eventually they did issue a statement where they said this is a Rogers family Situation. Um, It was also very interesting how this conflict brought in so many different players on Bay Street, a lot of different law firms, a lot of different bankers that were involved in the transaction. And so um, you, you could argue that a significant swath of this country really had some kind of a, a horse in this race and so uh, it really does kind of show you how ubiquitous Rogers was then and how much more ubiquitous they are now following the acquisition of Shaw
1: I mean how do they compare to Bell those are sort of the big two I mean we speak of Talus in, in kind of round out the big three but I think these two are, are really the two giants how, how do they stack up against one another now
3: uh, I mean, Rogers has always been the larger wireless company, um, and, but they do also, like Rogers and Bell are similar in that they both own media properties, and they also both co-own MLSE, which owns some of the largest sports teams in the country. Right. Uh, so, so there are definitely similarities. They're kind of roughly of similar size when you look at their revenue and their profits.
1: And I mean, you know, you look at the, you know, the outrage over, uh, you know, mobile phone bills, wireless bills. You look at now some of the pushback over how they're dealing with their media properties. You know, look, these these companies are protected in a lot of ways. We have a market that keeps out, you know, AT&T and Verizon, uh, you know, and very much to to the benefit of, of these companies. They're very big, very profitable but is it your sense maybe that I don't know or is, is the mood sort of shifting are they becoming bigger targets are they losing some of their political clout in any way is, that, is any of that starting to shift
3: well I mean, I think what's interesting is that Canadians have long been very unhappy with their options in the telecom industry. So this is not new in the book. For example, I tell a story about how at one point there was so much outrage in Western Canada against Rogers over what was called the negative option billing fiasco that people were throwing rocks at the red Rogers trucks. And this is part of the reason why Rogers actually ended up withdrawing from BC and choosing to double down on Ontario because Ted felt that their brand was sort of tainted there. And so this kind of outrage that people feel towards their telecom providers goes back a long time. And, you know, a lot of that, I think, is rooted in the fact that we do have these three very dominant players who control such a large portion of the market. Uh, And not only through the kind of main brands of Rogers, Bell and Telus, but they also have these flanker brands, which are the kind of lower cost brands. Um, And some people actually don't even know this, but some of these other brands you know like Fido and Kudo and public mobile they're actually owned by the big three and so you have a lot of market power kind of concentrated and then of course people have traveled they've been to other countries they've seen how much cheaper it could be to get you know a a sim card or a wireless plan in countries in europe for instance and so that kind of amplifies the level of anger we did see during the pandemic that there was actually a bit of a shift in that uh, regulators and government had come to really understand how crucial telecom networks had become to keeping people connected and so there was a little bit of like you know sympathy and I guess happiness with the industry for how well our networks held up during all of that. Uh, But at the same time, we did see in 2019, the liberal government that has come into power campaigning partly on affordability and in particular, a desire to drive down wireless prices. And so there is a lot of tension there uh, for the regulators and for the government in terms of trying to balance you know competition and lower prices with network investment. This is the thing that they're always grappling with
1: was well, mentioned you're going to be here uh, event happening tomorrow night a word at uh, seven o'clock at the memorial park library more details at wordfest.com the book is called rogers versus rogers the battle for control of canada's telecom empire alexandra thank you so much for joining us here today really appreciate this
3: thanks so much for having me
1: all the best that's uh, alexandra posodsky who is a business reporter telecom reporter with the globe and mail and author of the new book rogers versus rogers and yeah i mean she says if you like succession this is right up your alley I guess the higher the stakes, the higher the drama. And to control a company like this, it definitely matters. And so it's quite a story of the struggle to control this company at such an important moment. Not for, just for Rogers, but really for you know, telecom in Canada, this uh, Rogers-Shaw deal.
0: I'm not surprised that conservative premiers that have cut investments in health care who have hurt people by not investing in health care don't want to help people
1: that are struggling with the cost of diabetes. Not surprising to me. That was uh, Indy Peeler Jagmeet Singh uh, reacting to word out of Alberta and also Quebec. Those two provinces uh, may opt out of the first steps toward a national pharmacare program. The Liberals and NDP announced that they'd reached a deal on that last week, part of their supply and confidence agreement, and uh, legislation expected to be tabled sometime this week. So, in an email to Global News on Sunday, Alberta's health minister said if the federal government pursues a national pharmacare program, Alberta intends to opt out and instead intends to obtain a full per capita share of funding. Spokesperson for the minister says Alberta was not consulted on this. And there are limitations in the initial analysis and assumptions, including startup investment and administrative costs to implement a cost-sharing model that were not taken into consideration that adds costs for the provinces. So that's Alberta's position for now. And all we've heard so far is what's in that statement from the health minister. Well, The group Friends of Medicare, calling this outrageous Joining us for some further reaction, Chris Galloway, executive director with the group Friends of Medicare. Chris, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Rob. Good to be here.
1: Well, I mean, you know, is is it unreasonable for provinces, and Alberta's not alone here, as noted, to maybe want some consultation, given that they're the ones that are going to have to implement this?
0: Uh, we don't think it's uh, unreasonable. There's always a process for the federal government and provinces negotiate deals for national money and national programs. But what we're seeing from our provincial government is their declaration they're going to opt out before even knowing what's on offer we think that's completely irresponsible at a time when albertans are paying more for everything including their drugs they need support the provincial health minister should at least see what's on offer and reveal this week before opting out of a planned pharma care plan we think it's totally irresponsible and what's happening right now is no different than we've seen with child care with the recent health transfers the federal government presents something, and then they negotiate with the provinces to get it done. It's not a great negotiation technique for Alberta to say, we're out before having any information.
1: Right, but that doesn't preclude the federal government from still providing funding if, if it's their belief that this needs to be a
0: priority. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that's why we have a negotiation process. It was always the case that provinces would have to negotiate with the federal government for whatever happened with Pharmacare. No, this isn't a new debate. It's been happening for, for years and years. We've had promises from the federal government for multiple elections, and now we're finally at the phase where they're going to put something forward to Canadians and to the provinces, and we should see what they have to say and then make a decision based on that.
1: As you say, though, we haven't seen this. I mean, why do you believe that this, this is the right approach?
0: Well, what we do know is uh, what has been leaked over the weekend uh, is that they're talking about a single-payer system. They're talking about things like contraceptives, and medication for folks living with diabetes, things that there are huge gaps for in Alberta right now, which the minister full well knows. You know, in her statement, she also stated that all Albertans have access to publicly supported drug coverage, but that's simply not true. Uh, Folks living with diabetes are struggling to get by. We should be listening to what the federal government has to table and then make a decision based on that. Not going to war, picking a petty political fight with Ottawa every time they do anything. We should actually do what's best for Albertans.
1: But are we talking about? Is this likely to be then, uh, you know, a, a universal pharmacare program? Is is that the path we're on here? Because I, I think you I, I identify where, yes, maybe there are some falling through the cracks. But does this need to disrupt everybody else's coverage?
0: Yeah, and that's what we're waiting to see. The what's been presented in the media so far is that we're looking at a single payer program for contraceptives, for uh, diabetes, and also moving forward with a universal pharmacare program. We don't know timelines or what exactly they're going to table for legislation because we haven't seen that yet so it's hard to comment on what would be good but what we do know is that a universal national plan is the fiscally responsible thing to do alberta saying we just want a pot of money to do something else is the worst possible strategy anyone who's worked uh, on employer benefit plans bargained on those knows that the bigger the plan is the bigger the savings we will miss out on over seven billion dollars in savings in this country if we don't have one national bulk buyer for our drugs. That's well documented. So Alberta claiming we'll opt out, we'll get some money from Ottawa, and it'll be just as good, simply cannot be true.
1: So you're saying you think that this will actually lower drug costs?
0: Well, it should, right? It's well documented. There's the parliamentary budget officers looked at proposals for universal pharmacare. There was the whole Hoskins report from the federal government. We're looking at saving billions of dollars just on drug costs not counting the savings we would see by not having thousands of different drug plans across the country, the savings we would see in hospitals and emergency rooms from folks not showing up because they haven't been able to afford their medication. And we know that's a real problem. One in five Albertans say they're struggling to afford the medications they need right now. And a third of working Albertans don't have employer coverage at all. So it's a real issue that we need to be looking at solving, and we know that the best way to solve it and the most fiscally responsible way is a universal national plan. So Alberta shouldn't simply be stomping their feet and saying no before even knowing the details.
1: So given, you know, the situation in Alberta where we have Albertans who have coverage through an employer, we have Mm -hmm. Albertans who qualify then for non-group coverage plans Mm -hmm. uh, and other assistance programs, so who does that leave out then? Who still falls through those, those cracks?
0: Well, one in third Albertans don't have employer coverage even when they're working, right? It's not something all employers are providing anymore. There's huge gaps there. But even if you do have coverage, if you have Blue Cross or if you have an employer plan, it doesn't cover everything. There's copays, there's caps, there's different formularies, thousands of different formularies in all these different plans. So we know folks are falling through the cracks even with coverage. And one of the groups that's most common with is folks living with diabetes, which is the group they're talking about helping right away. You know, the equipment you need, not just the insulin and the medication, but there's strips, there's needles, there's pumps, there's glucose monitors. This is all very expensive stuff. Most plans don't cover it fully. And we saw just like a year ago in Alberta, the provincial government actually tried to roll back the insulin pump program, the public plan. So folks living with diabetes don't have a lot of trust. In the provincial government just taking some money from Ottawa and providing something, they want to see universal coverage that covers everything and makes their life better.
1: Well, you know, this doesn't cover everything I just mentioned. I mean, we're, we're dealing with diabetes medication and contraceptives. Why, why these
0: two, then? I'm unsure why they came to that conclusion, right? It was a no- negotiation between the NDP and the Liberals in Ottawa. Uh, perhaps they think it's the easiest place to start in terms of creating a formulary, but we're waiting to see the legislation Is that just those two categories or is it more? It's actually unclear in what they've said if they're saying those will be part of it or those are the first two things. We're not sure yet. So again, we're waiting to see what the federal government puts out there this week before commenting on how good the plan is, how good the details are. That's why we hadn't commented yet because we were waiting to see what was actually being proposed. Our provincial government didn't wait and decided to get out there and pick a fight with the federal government without knowing what they're fighting about.
1: Well, as I mentioned, we're expecting the legislation this week. We'll see if the, the health minister, the premier, has more to say on Alberta's position at some point as well. Uh, more at friendsofmedicare.org. Chris, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate your input on this.
0: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: All right. Chris Galloway is executive director with Friends of Medicare. So they're calling out the Alberta government's uh, approach here. Like I say, I, I, I'd like the, the minister, the premier, to elaborate on this. I think Alberta's got some justifiable concerns here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.